0: You glad for one who is representing you, representing you before the Father. So thankful that we have one. We have an advocate. Amen. I'm glad. I'm glad for a victorious life this morning. I'm glad for the possibility of a victorious life. First John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, these things I write to you that you sin not. And and that is God's plan. It's God's intention for us. And it is possible, moment by moment, by relying on God's grace. It is possible. But he went on to say, if a man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have one who is representing us, and we can come to him. And um, I used to think that if if you had to do that, if you needed the advocate, um, I kind of used to have this view of God like one who was watching over everything you did, and, and the minute you made a wrong move, he, he would kick you out of the kingdom, and then you would have to start all over again and go back to square one. I'm so glad for God helping me to understand that He is not a Father who is like that. He is not one who is waiting to kick us out of the kingdom, but He stands ready to receive. Oh yes, we can choose to walk away if we want to. We can choose to walk away. But if in the course of life, for whatever reason, temptation comes our way, testing comes our way, and we find that for whatever reason we have fallen into sin, the moment you realize that, you can go to your father and say, oh, father, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? And you pick right back up and go on from there, amen, amen, so glad, I saw something, I've seen it a number of times, but I saw it again yesterday, Uh, someone shared I think on their Facebook page, religion says, oh I messed up, I hope my dad doesn't find out, but Christianity says, oh I messed up, I need to call my dad. Big difference. Big difference. Amen. This uh, message that I feel like God has laid on my heart is a little heavy. Pun intended. Thank you, Paul. So I, I needed some kind of indication that Somebody got what I was saying and and he did um. <laughs> It was a groan, is that what it was? Yeah. I remember hearing a story about a a little a little little man who was somewhat henpecked in his marriage, and he heard the preacher. Preaching about being a disciple and following Jesus, and if you were going to be a disciple, you had to take up your cross and follow Jesus. wasn't too long later before the pastor saw that little man carrying his wife round on his back. So what are you doing? Well, you said we've got to take up our cross and follow Jesus, so that's what I'm trying to do, trying to take up my cross. The man in the picture is Paul Anderson. Um, Paul Anderson is arguably one of the strongest men to ever live. Um, In the photograph, he is doing a one arm dumbbell press with a three hundred pound dumbbell. It's pretty incredible. The records to his credit include world records a back lift, which is not a full lift. It's a it's a lift where the weight is supported by your by your hips and and around your waist and you're on a platform and you're getting into a a partially crouched position and then just straightening your legs to lift a weight just a little ways off the ground. 6,270 pounds. Incredible, incredible amount of weight. Which, by the way, the Guinness Book of World Records listed that as the greatest weight ever lifted by a human being. He had numerous records in powerlifting uh, in small exhibitions. Uh, He did a squat of 930 pounds, a bench press of 628 pounds, a deadlift of 820 pounds. My dad actually got to meet Paul Anderson on one occasion. Uh, He was bicycling through the area where my dad and his family lived, Paul Anderson lived in, uh, I believe it was Toccoa, Georgia, and he had a, a home for orphan children there, um, and he was bicycling in an effort to raise funds, raise money for his orphan home, uh, a distance of about 500 miles, and when my dad met him, he was bicycling over a mountain, and uh, wearing flip-flops, no less. Guys like Paul Anderson have made a career of lifting heavy burdens. And we look at guys like Paul Anderson, read about them. He was not a very tall man, uh, but uh, he was well-equipped to do what he did. Um, We look at other men that seem to be well-equipped to do things like this. And they do it as a matter of sport, I guess, athleticism, just to see what they can do. But I don't know if if you have ever felt like this about life, but life sometimes feels this way to me. It's just a heavy, heavy burden. It is a load to carry. What do you do when sometimes it seems as if God either gives you or allows the burden to be placed upon you? I don't like the the concept. I don't like the idea and I don't really care for the idea of being a burden bearer, one who carries a burden. But I have learned that before good things can happen, before good things can come about, often a burden must be acquired and carried. And after that burden has been acquired and carried, eventually good things can happen. I started studying this past week the book of Amos, and interestingly enough, the name Amos means burden bearer. Burden bearer. As we look at the message that God gave to Amos to share, I can see very easily how appropriate his name is. God placed a burden upon him for his people, for the people of Israel and for the people of Judah, and it was a burden that consisted of a, a, prof, a, a series of prophetic messages and visions that he was responsible for for sharing with his people, with his countrymen. Amos is listed as one of the prophets. Um, if you, you you can start trying to find it now, by the way, it might take you a little bit to get there because it's one of the smaller books, and um, you find Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Um, that's sometimes the way I have to do it. I have to I go start where I know and then work my way, <laughs> and then I get there. Um, Amos was not like the typical prophets, many of the typical prophets of his day, Um he served a little bit prior to the time of Isaiah. We read in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah received his vision of God in the throne room vision. And Isaiah saying introduces that by saying in the year that King Uzziah died. And Amos served during the reigns of King Uzziah and Jeroboam II. Uh, this was after the divided kingdom. Uh, he was not a priest, he was not the typical prophet in in some ways, but he was simply a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. he He was a layperson, like many of you. and God burdened him for the problems, for the needs of his country, of his society, and called him to share that message there were several there were several aspects of his message his message started out directed at the nations surrounding Israel and Judah and you can go to the beginning and look at chapter 1 and you might have a title or section headings throughout your bible like i do and just over verse 2 of chapter 1 it says judgment on Israel's neighbors and he starts calling out the nations surrounding Israel. And he talks about nations like Damascus and Ammon and Moab and Edom and, and Gaza and Tyre, these different ones. But if you, if you follow that, it's interesting. He just is kind of circling around and circling around and getting the field more narrow and narrow and narrow until the bullseye ends up being Israel and Judah. Central to his message is a message of woe, not like, wow, woe, we hear woe today, whoa, man, that's cool, that kind of thing, that's not what Amos was saying. In fact, if you do the word studies on the word that is translated in our Bibles often as woe, you will find, I think, three or four different words from the Hebrew language that are translated as woe. And they all mean essentially the same thing. It's, uh, I'm trying to say this right. Onomatopoetic. You know what onomatopoeia is? That's a, that's a word that sounds like what it is. Buzz, is, that's an example of onomatopoeia. Woe is, is a word like that. It is an expression of grief and mourning, like a moan. You remember Isaiah chapter 6, again. He said he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and he saw the the cherubim calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I was thinking about this, and we had some good friends stop by uh, yesterday that were just traveling through, friends that my wife and I have known for a lot of years, went to college with. And... uh, he is a, an army chaplain, and we were talking uh, different aspects of our responsibilities, and I was thinking about this. We didn't talk directly about this, but I, I, you know, you may have seen it on, on the television or seen it in a film, the, the guys in the military that have the responsibility of going to a wife or to a mother to tell them that their son or, or daughter, whatever the case may be, has been lost in action. Can you imagine being the person in that position to have that responsibility? I have participated a few times in, uh, obviously, in funerals and times of of sharing with grief and, oh, it's a heavy, heavy load. It's it's a burden. This is Amos. Now, I want to, tell you that the message and the ideas that we find from the book of Amos that is it is addressed they are addressed to Israel in the context of the Mosaic covenant which basically was God telling the people of Israel you obey me and follow the the laws of my covenant and I will bless you and all will be well but if you disobey me I will bring upon you the curse of the covenant and, and so I say that to just acknowledge we know we don't live in that same time frame right now. We know we don't live under that dispensation or that covenant. We are under the New Testament covenant where, thank God for the, the gift of Jesus Christ and His cross and, and through the blood of the new covenant, we can come before God we can have our sins forgiven so I just just acknowledging that and however I I see some parallels here that I can't ignore in how it speaks to the church today as we look at Amos chapter 5 beginning with verse 18 Amos begins a series of three woes. The first one would be woe to the ignorant, woe to the ignorant, and this is directed to those who desire the day of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What is Amos saying? He's saying there are people in Israel who are longing for the day of the Lord. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is a reference to the day that God shows up in judgment. And the people in Israel, I'm sure when Amos started his message and began by calling out the nations surrounding Israel and Judah, I'm sure the Israelites, those that were hearing his message, were were saying, amen, Amos, (laughs) preach it, brother. Those ammonites, those people, you know, all those other nations surrounding us, all they're wicked, sinful people. Preach it, brother. They long for the day of the Lord, that day when God comes in judgment on you know that's that attitude of of uh, people praying or thinking about the problems in the church and like the one man who said he he would leave the church every day and he would tell the pastor he'd shake the pastor's hand and say you sure told him today pastor you sure told him today and that pastor all the time he was zeroing in on that fellow on that man he was the one he wanted to get the message and he was trying to think how in the world can i can that man get the message and one day the, as as the story is told Uh, there was a very small crowd, not many people at all. But among those that were there was just this one, this man. And that pastor thought, now's my chance. I can really get the message across. And so he preached a hot one. And uh, again, close of the service, the man walked out and, and the man said, well, pastor, if they'd have been here, you'd have sure told them. And that was the attitude of the Israelites, looking at the people around them and thinking they're the ones that need God, they're the ones that need to change their ways, but we are God's blessed, God's chosen, favored people, and they continued carrying on. You know, ignorance can be excused in some cases, right? Ignorance can be excused in some cases. I mean, you don't, you don't know what you don't know, right? Right? But it's different when those who ought to know better don't seem to. People who have ended up deluded and deceived and having, for whatever reason, put themselves in their own mind in a position of, I, I'm okay, I've done what it takes, But you see what had happened? God's people had ignored the relational aspect of their connection with Yahweh. They they were carrying on in religious activity and religious ceremony. Notice what it says again in chapter 5, verse 21. Through the prophet, God is telling his people, "'I hate and despise your feasts. "'I take no delight in your solemn assemblies.'" Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And quite honestly, I read this and within me there is this tug of war going on because I say, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor of the church, I want people to come to church. I want us to sing together when we're at church and, and worship God. These things that it sounds like the Israelites were doing, they were carrying on in their religious activity, and their ceremony, and yet all the time God is trying to tell them, "I stop it. I'm not interested in your religious activity if it is doing nothing to change the way you are interacting with the people that are around you. They were living lives that were totally unrighteous and unjust. Interestingly enough, I'm not going to go into this a whole lot this morning, but the book of Amos is one of those books in the Old Testament that has the most to say about how God's people treat the poor of the land <clears throat> how might this apply to the church how might this apply to you and to me i've thought about this and really it makes me quite uncomfortable i have i have made the statement in service here i've made it to some of you in just personal conversation, that there are times when I think, oh, it would just be nice if Jesus would come back. I've said that. Have you said that? Sure. To which usually we are referring to the mess that our world is in and all the problems of life that we have and think, oh, you know, if Jesus would just come back and get us out of all of this mess, that would just be, that would just be nice. But then as I think about this passage as Amos is giving this message of woe to the ignorant, in other words, those who are saying, oh, I long for the day of the Lord to come, when they're failing to realize that they are some of the ones that are in the crosshairs. And I ask myself, could I really be comfortable not talking speculatively But I'm saying, in reality, to know that in two hours, Jesus is going to come back. And we would know. The day of the Lord is here. Woe to the ignorant. In other words, people who say, oh, I long for the day of the Lord. But they're failing to realize. They've deluded themselves into thinking, I'm okay. When all the time, they're the ones in the crosshairs. Woe to the indifferent. The second message of woe. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. In other words, we feel secure. Amos was written during a time when wealth was increasing for the land of Israel. Jeroboam II, though he was not a a good and godly king, he was doing things that were politically, geopolitically, in the best interests of Israel. They were expanding their territory, things were going good, and the Israelites overall felt secure and they felt like they were blessed and everything was good. And the threat that the prophets were warning them about was Assyria. And the interesting thing is, at that point, Assyria was not even a very big threat. It was, a, it was a smaller nation. They didn't have very much power, uh, but they were growing in their power and in their might. That's why Amos here points out these other, these other lands, these countries, Calnei, Hamath, Gath of the Philistines. These are places where the Assyrians had come in and begun to take over, begun to attack. And Amos is saying, are you any better than they are? But they felt comfortable, they felt secure, and so they were, as the scriptures say, at ease in Zion. At ease in Zion. I remember hearing a story about a poor teacher trying to teach a class of rowdy and unruly high school students. And as that poor teacher was trying to communicate with them, and they were just continuing to kind of have a party time in class instead of really paying attention, the, the teacher eventually angrily slammed her book down and got a piece of chalk and turned to the chalkboard and angrily in big slashing letters, A-P-A-T-H-Y, and one of the students in the back of the class turned over to a neighbor and said, what's a pathy? <laughs> and the neighbor said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I think of a good man that I enjoyed hearing preach. He, he told a story about a church that he had been to preaching and he said he'd he had admired the the building was a beautiful little sanctuary beautiful building and um, he said he'd come i guess it was early before one of the services and uh, one of the little ladies of the church there was talking with him about their nice little church and she said oh don't you like our nice little church and he he was complimentary yes it's very nice and And she said, yes, when we built this church, she said we wanted to build it just the right size for us and for our families. Not too big and not too little, but just the right size for us and for our families. I I mean, no concern for people that are out and about. No concern outside of the scope of our own little blinders, our own little vision. People, this worries me. It concerns me, and it doesn't concern me just for you, but it concerns me for for me. It concerns me for my family. Because, quite honestly, well, let me not go there yet. Save that. Woe to the ignorant, woe to the indifferent, woe to the indulgent. I, I had to throw in something every now and then to lighten this up a little bit. Um, look at Amos chapter four, verse one. Hear this, words, you cows, of Bashan. And I, if I understand what the commentaries say, I mean, actually, you don't have to read the commentaries. It's very clear right here, what. Amos, and who Amos is talking about. You cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Ooh, Amos is sending chills down my spine, because we know the saying, hell hath no fury like what? A woman scorned. Now, understand, ladies, I'm not picking on the ladies. And I believe the words in the message of Amos, though he was picking on the ladies. The message here is clear. There were people who were enjoying lives of luxury at the expense of others. But you know what they failed to realize? You know that that fattened cows... Get fattened for a reason, they get fattened for a reason, and it ain't a good reason either. Well, for us, yeah, it's a great it's great for us. but as far as we know, the poor cow never the poor cow never gets suspicious. You know the poor cow has to be thinking this is the life. This is great. I I understand that when cows are fattened, they they are pinned up in a smaller area so they are not allowed to roam as widely. In other words, they don't get as much exercise. And they are fed well. And the poor cow has to be thinking, oh, this is the life. This is great. Until... Judgment Day comes, and they are led to the slaughterhouse. People who are enjoying luxury yet are not grieved. This convicted me. Verse two of Amos chapter four The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. So that's that's the part, remember, they're they're living in luxury, unaware that judgment day is coming, and Amos is saying, You had better be careful. Judgment is on its way. <coughs> Again, Amos chapter six, verse four. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls, not glasses, not not bowls. They're drinking bowls. I mean, they're indulging. And they're, this is great, this is the life, we were God's people, we're God's chosen people, and everything, you know, everything is going so good, everything is so good. Drink wine and bowls, anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. Oh, friends, this is heavy, and I don't like preaching these kinds of messages. Is there any parallel for the church of today? What so quickly came to my mind is the letters to the seven churches that we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And out of those churches, if memory serves me correctly, there are only two that have favorable. Mostly favorable mention and very little negative. The Ephesian church, though they had a wonderful beginning, Jesus said, I have something against you because you left your first love. The church at Pergamum was a compromising church, compromising with the world. The church at Thyatira was a tolerant church. Now, that's a buzzword for these days, isn't it? The scripture says that they were tolerating Jezebel. In other words, a, a someone, uh, probably not actually named Jezebel, but someone who had come into their midst who was propagating false teaching and false doctrine. And they were just, you know, probably like a lot of us, probably like I would be. You know, you don't want to push anybody away or drive anybody away. You don't want to offend or hurt anybody's feelings, and so you try to you know, tolerate as much as you can and keep keep everybody happy and smooth the ruffled feathers and all of that. The church at Sardis was a church with a reputation for life, but was dying. And most disturbing of all was the church at Laodicea that that Jesus said, you think that you are rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. But you do not realize that you are miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. They were a lukewarm church. So this was Amos's burden, this message of woe to the people, woe to the ignorant, woe to the indulgent. Woe to the indifferent. So what is going to be the result and the response of this? Chapter 6, verse 14, Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebohamath to the brook of the Arabah. Now this is, those two points are geographic points that are saying from the north to the south. In other words, your whole everything is going to be, you're going to be swept away, the whole thing. This is the result. So what are the possibilities? Is there still opportunity? Is there still hope? And oh, friends, this is the good part. This is the good part. You see, I believe firmly, and I know we have Examples throughout Scripture of prophets like, like Jeremiah, who is the weeping prophet, who, who was told, you're going to go and you're going to preach and here's the message I want you to preach, but people aren't going to listen. You're going to have no results. And I understand that that would be a terrible thing to have to have that responsibility, carry that burden, and yet know that nobody was going to hear you. However, I still have to believe in order for God to send someone to give the message, there had to have been a possibility for repentance. For the people to humble themselves and turn. God sent Jonah to the Ninevites, very, very wicked people. Jonah didn't even want to go. And Jonah was actually happy, and uh, you remember how the story goes, I believe it's in the last chapter of the book of Jonah. Jonah said, you see God, this is exactly why I didn't want to go, because I knew you were a God of long-suffering and mercy, and I knew you would find some way to forgive those no-good Ninevites. That's exactly what Jonah said. And yet God did have mercy and forgive them. And I've got to believe whether there are people who actually respond or not. Because you see, we all have a free will, and God is not going to override any of our free wills. Whenever God sends a messenger, there must be a possibility for the people to turn and repent and humble themselves. And it's very clear in the book of Amos that there is a possibility. We read about it in Amos chapter 5, several places where he says, seek me and live, Amos chapter 5, verse 4, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. So what is that about? It's mentioning these places, Bethel, Beersheba, and Gilgal. These were all places where the, uh, of, uh, um, we would call them significant spiritual centers for Israel. You know Bethel was the place where God revealed Himself to to Jacob, and you know Jacob had the vision of the ladder, the angels ascending and descending, and he woke up the next morning and said, "God was in this place, and I knew it not." It turned into one of these places where um, you remember when the kingdom divided, and the the one king said, oh, "I don't want my people to have to go to Jerusalem to worship because then they might." They might defect. I might lose my people. So he set up centers of worship for them in other locations. That was essentially, in a nutshell, Bethel, Beersheba, and Gilgal. They were all of these places of kind of significant spiritual places, places where people would go to worship. And often what they called worship turned into something just horrible idolatry and immorality but you know there's a parallel for this in the church of our day and i've got to be honest with you and tell you this is a potential pitfall for me rather than genuine humility and paying a price and carrying a burden, there is a temptation to pursue a spiritual experience where songs are sung and emotions are stirred and, and, and maybe something to, to produce a few goosebumps or whatever, a chill up your spine or however you experience that. Now don't get me wrong, there is something that is genuine and authentic about sensing the presence of God. However, it's also true, the old saying that we used to hear, it's not about how high you jump, but it's about how straight you live when you come down. And people, it's no good for us to pursue revival meetings and, and revivals. are though we are planning one, we have one scheduled and we're announcing it. It's no good for us to, to come together and sing and worship and read God's Word and, and hope. And sometimes, you know, we may cry and shed some tears and, and maybe even praise the Lord together. But it's no good if it does nothing to change our lifestyle, the way that we live. He goes on to say, seek good and not evil. Seek good and not evil. In other words, these were people who were in the habit of exercising religion that had no impact on the way they lived their lives. They would come together and maybe have a high old time. But it didn't actually change the way they lived. I know this is heavy. But I want to tell you, I believe before the blessing and the good things of revival can come, there must be people who are willing to say, yes, Lord, I will take that burden. I will take that burden. And no, no revival has ever begun with the period of high emotion and having a high old time. It comes when people begin to accept the burden and humble themselves and go down before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to change? It was at exactly noon on Wednesday, September twenty-third, 1857, at the Old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. For three months, a lay missionary, a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, had gone into every business and shop and boarding house in the area surrounding that church, inviting people to come together for a prayer meeting on that particular Wednesday, September 23rd. But as he entered the church at noon... On September 23rd, nobody was there. Most of the churches in the heart of New York City had moved to the suburbs when their affluent members had left the city. In fact, the North Dutch church had relocated out of the inner city also, but had decided to leave a mission work in their old building in lower Manhattan. This section of New York City was full of businesses and immigrants and laborers and, and Lamphere, this man who was a businessman himself, was tasked with reaching out to these people with the message of the gospel for Christ. He was there at 10 after 12, and still no one had come. The California gold rush of 1848 had turned men from God to riches, but by by 1857, economic times were hard again, and businesses were closing. 30,000 men sat idle in New York City. This was a time just prior to the civil war slavery was just tearing at the fabric of our nation and the threat of war was looming and there was desperation in the air. Jeremiah Lanfier had decided upon a prayer meeting because nothing else he had tried was bringing people into the church and he was discouraged. But prayer was his solace. It was what helped him. And if it encouraged his heart to fellowship with God, then he thought perhaps maybe others would feel the same way. Lamphere said, In prayer we leave the business of time for that of eternity. At 1220 that day still no one had come. Jeremiah Lamphere, with no theological training but a deep commitment to the will of God, sat down in the empty church building and began praying. Finally, at 1230, five men walked in to pray. There was no fanaticism, no hysteria, and from a human perspective, nothing extraordinary was happening. And certainly there was no idea that this would begin one of the greatest revival movements in American history. It was simply six men quietly, earnestly seeking God on behalf of their city. The next Wednesday, 14 people attended that prayer meeting. Within six months, there were anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 men and women gathering together at 20 different prayer meetings daily around the city of New York. For a period of time, it is estimated that 10,000 people were being converted in New York City each week. The prayer meeting united people across socioeconomic lines at a time when little was uniting Americans. It was a group acknowledging their dependence on God and simply communicating with Him. And if you know anything about this period of time, this this time in history, you will also know that it was a time when people of various uh, doctrinal persuasions, denominational backgrounds came together. They did not uh, necessarily... All come in agreement on one doctrine. They simply recognized there was something more important than their differences and their distinctions, and that was seeking God for the needs of their city and their country and their neighbors. The format was simple individuals prayed aloud for unsaved family members or co workers by name, hymns were sung. Testimonies were given, but prayer was the primary focus. Because New York City was a business hub, merchants and businessmen came from all over the country to do business in New York City, as they still do. And many were swept by the tide of revival that they found there. On one occasion, a visiting merchant from Albany was selecting goods when the noon hour came. He requested that the wholesaler work through the noon hour so he could return to Albany by the evening riverboat. But the response from the wholesaler was, Oh no, I can't do that. I have something to attend to that is more important than the selling of goods. I must attend the noonday prayer meeting. He said, It will close at one o'clock and I will then fill out your order. They both attended the meeting and the visiting merchant was converted. When he returned to Albany, he immediately started a noonday prayer meeting in that city. Prayer meetings spread up the east coast to New Haven, Connecticut, to Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. They also spread to newly developing areas in the west, Chicago, St. Louis, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Detroit, Minneapolis, Omaha, and as far away as Ireland. Headlines in newspapers across the country carried the news of revival. Ice on the Mohawk River broken for baptisms. That's commitment, isn't it? Revival sweeps Yale. The New York Times, in an editorial dated March 20, 1858, stated the following about the revival. The great wave of religious excitement which is now sweeping over this nation is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. It is most impressive to think that over this great land, tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are asking themselves at this time, in a simple, serious way, the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind, what shall we do to be saved from sin? Within 18 months of the first prayer meeting in the old North Dutch Reformed Church, it is estimated that one million souls across the United States had come to Christ. So what's the relevance for you and for me? The relevance is this, that one man was willing to take up the burden and say, yes, Lord, I'll carry the burden. I'll pray. I know I've been lengthy this morning. Forgive me. You may say, Pastor, are you willing to be the man? I hope it won't trouble you too badly if I'm honest and tell you I'm not sure. I I want to be. I want to be. And I can tell you this at least I am willing to say, Lord, you can make me willing. You can make me willing. And I'm, I'm willing for that. I'm willing for that. No, I know God is most likely not going to duplicate anything that he's ever done in the past. The wonderful thing about the message of Amos is Amos holds out the opportunity even if the nation wholesale does not return to God, he mentions that there might possibly be a remnant. And people, we may never see revival sweep our land again as it has in the past. I wish we could, would like to. I don't want to live and die without ever having seen god move in a mighty powerful way in my own life and in my own family i do believe this wherever wherever we are god can say hey i can your little corner your home it can be a place where i'm working where i'm i'm doing i'm busy i'm changing i'm changing your life i'm changing the lives of the people that you come into contact with